0: Thanks to everyone who's listened, shared, emailed, and been guinea pigs for the stories. Huge thanks to everyone who's sent my absolute favorite email to read, the one that says, quote, I found one episode and went back and listened to them all. You cannot imagine how happy that makes me. But enough fluff, let's get to it. While pushing out the previous 99 episodes and working with hundreds of entrepreneurs at the same time, we've learned a lot about what it takes to build something that matters to reach your potential. Today, we'll talk through the most important thing you can do to get out of your own way and give yourself the best chance to reach that potential. And on our 100th episode, like most of the 99 before this one, I need to start with a story. My grandfather, Emil Scordato, was born in 1912. His parents had come from Sicily a few years before, along with his three brothers, the youngest of which was 10 years older than my grandpa. As I say that, I want to recognize how hilariously flimsy all of this is. My grandfather was clearly an accident. His dad was a furniture craftsman who struggled to make ends meet, and it's highly unlikely they wanted another mouth to feed 10 years after the first three were born. No accident, no grandpa. No grandpa, no dad, no me, no idea to start a podcast. And right now, you'd probably be stuck listening to yet another episode of How I Built This with Guy Raz, who I'll grudgingly admit has a buttery, smooth voice. Guy's got cadence. I've accepted it. But that accident did happen, so our story continues. My grandpa graduated high school right as the Great Depression hit. He stood in a hallway for hours along with 50 other men for an interview for a job opening. He ended up getting the job, which was delivering mail all over Lower Manhattan. While delivering mail, he started attending night classes at City College. He would go to class after work, get home to his parents' house around 9 or 10 at night, eat a dinner that my great-grandma had left for him, then go to sleep, waking up at 4 a.m. to study before heading downtown to deliver the mail and do it all again. He did this for 10 years before earning his engineering degree in his 30s. He was the first in our family to graduate college. After a few years of work, he went off on his own to try his hand at consulting. He learned quicker than most of us do that consulting kind of stinks, so at the age of 39, he met a doctor named John Gorman, and together they started a business called Medical Laboratory Automations, MLA for short. The business struggled for about a decade before turning the corner around the time my grandpa turned 50, eventually becoming the largest employer in Pleasantville, New York, a suburb about 30 or so miles from the city. At its peak, MLA employed hundreds of people, built cutting-edge medical technology, and put my dad and aunt through college. My grandfather built things that solve problems. He'd talk about all the crap out there. There was nothing he hated more than products that didn't solve problems and had fake differentiators. To be a difference, a difference has to make a difference, he'd always say. When he was in the hospital in his 70s or 80s i forget exactly when he noticed nurses had an excruciatingly hard time moving bigger patients around which they had to do a lot so he started a new company called stretch chair to solve that problem real problem real solution good business at the age of 93 he started what would be his last business going full circle and ending up at the ever tempting consulting career and was remodeling new offices when he died at 95. When we sifted through his house after he'd passed, it was like stumbling into a low-tech version of Iron Man's lair. There were weighted pulleys that closed the medicine cabinet doors and so many things that stuck to the walls with Velcro, it looked like we were in a space station where anything untethered would float away. In the backyard, there was a machine running on a lawnmower engine that would move a metal wire on a timer to scare the geese away. And I can't even describe the contraptions created for Jake, his eight-pound poodle. My grandpa, who we lovingly called Poppy, was extraordinary. But that's not why I'm starting the 100th episode talking about him. I'm doing it because I'm pretty sure if you and I were in a coffee shop and I told you about my grandpa, you'd just tell me a story about your grandpa or grandma or great aunt or whoever that was just as, if not more impressive. We are not descendants of timid people. We wouldn't be here if we were. And sometimes just being reminded of that can be helpful. Because whoever was impressive in your family, you're made of the same stuff. You're capable of it. We just need to get out of our own way sometimes so that we can reach that potential. Because while the challenges were likely bigger back then, they're tougher to identify and define now. It's tougher to wake up early when you're sleeping in silk sheets, and comparatively, we all are. In today's world, the challenge isn't being smarter, it's being less stupid. It's cutting out the chaff. That's where the biggest delta is. So today's episode is about getting out of your own way and tapping into your potential. The absolute best things we've learned watching the best entrepreneurs we've worked with build amazing businesses, and maybe a lesson or two mixed in from my Sicilian grandfather. And we'll get to them in episode 100, after some smooth jazz. I'm Brian Scardato, and this is the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox, a monthly membership program that provides structure, strategy, and network for entrepreneurs testing and building startup ideas on the side. We help you flesh out and test your idea so you can understand its potential and start working purposefully towards that potential. We put everything we learned from seven years helping over 350 idea stage entrepreneurs build businesses that raised over $100 bucks and are now worth nearly a billion into this program. It's a clear step-by-step path with target metrics that will take you from idea to product. It's the thing I would have killed for when I was working on my idea without direction or a team, which is exactly why we built it. We're going to launch 250 businesses this year. One of those might as well be yours. Head to gettacklebox.com/nowhisperideas to get the podcast listeners deal. And if you do, I'll see you on Wednesday at our one-on-one strategy session. Back to it. Paperclips changed my life. The first ever cohort of Tacklebox was way back in 2015. At the time, there were only a handful of accelerator programs for Idea Stage folks, and they all required you to have already quit your job. They also all gave you money, which meant you kinda had to already have your shit figured out before they offered any help. That was a theme. Anyone who could help you wouldn't because they weren't incentivized to. Don't teach people how to get through the gauntlet, just wait to see who's able to fight their way through, then help those people. It's way easier and a good enough filtering mechanism. It's also lazy. It pissed me off because there were tons of people capable of getting through the gauntlet who couldn't or wouldn't because not everyone can just up and quit their jobs and spend six months full-time on an idea. I love a risk-averse entrepreneur. I love an entrepreneur with options. I love an entrepreneur with domain expertise. And lots of times, these people aren't sold on starting a business, even though they'd crush it if they did. I thought I saw a real problem I could solve. Tacklebox would exist for people that wanted to vet their idea before making any huge life decisions. We'd be accountability, network, and process. It all sounded good on paper, and I knew I could help people if I got my paws on them, but I had no reputation. I'd never done this before. How would I get people to pay me a few thousand dollars for the program that didn't actually even exist, and they'd never heard of me anyway? I talked about Tacklebox for a while until a good friend who'd built a business told me something I will never forget. Your default state, he said, is to not start a business. Everything you've been doing supports a life where you aren't starting a business. To start a business, you need to fundamentally change how you spend your time. Your days need to be built to default start a business, not default not start a business. Enter Paperclips, my very first life design experiment and one that lasts to this day. I learned it from somewhere, I think maybe James Clear, and it is one of my favorite techniques, and I've tried hundreds. I decided to really take Tacklebox seriously. I'd have to reach out to 15 people every day to help me figure out how to find 10 entrepreneurs with jobs and interesting ideas willing to pay me $2,500 to meet a few times a week in a sweaty conference room in WeWork in New York City. I put two bins on my desk with 15 paper clips in the left hand bin and none in the right. Every time I reached out to someone, I'd move a paper clip from the left to the right. I wouldn't go to sleep until the left bin was empty. In the morning, I'd switch the bins and I'd start again. It was visual, and it was a source of pride. I did this for a month. I ended up with an empty paperclip bin every single night. Finding the 15 people each day was tough. I went through all my first-degree connections in a few days, and they weren't all that helpful. I immediately had to start thinking creatively. A few days in, I landed on what would be the most effective strategy by far, hub and spoke. I tried to think of who would actually want to get a cold email from me. Who might this email help rather than just feel like a chore for? Who would be excited enough about this email to suggest a call with me? I realized venture capitalists heard pitches all day and a lot of those pitches would be from entrepreneurs that were too early. There's nothing worse than telling people no and VCs are forced to do it all day. There's even a meme about how VCs always ask, how can I be helpful in their silly little vests when they don't give you money? And I'm sure that's just a way to blunt the edge of a no. Maybe we could help blunt the no with Tacklebox, change it from a no to a not right now, but maybe later?" Warm intros to VCs led to VCs telling a few entrepreneurs who'd recently pitched in their rejection email that they might want to check out this program called Tacklebox. It might help them get ready for funding. A few days later, we got our first startup. Once people started applying to the program, I started to interview them. I needed to, to find who my next paperclips would be. Who did they go to for startup advice? Who did they trust? because whoever they trusted would need to know who we were and believe in what we did. They answered quick. They always had a startup friend, someone in their general social network who had started a business and had some success. My next lead for paperclips. I started cold emailing everyone who'd recently raised a Series A in New York City and told them about what I was up to. And then I offered them a discount code to pass along to their friends with ideas. Next time someone asks you what to do with your startup idea, I said, and you aren't really sure what to do, send them our way and people did. My favorite ride at the water park is the lazy river. There is nothing better than relaxing and letting the water take you wherever. But most people go through life on the lazy river. They let the inertia take them the same place everyone else goes, which leads them to the same place everyone else ends up. You need to design your life to avoid the default inertia, to do things fundamentally different than other people do because you want fundamentally different results. A good exercise is to think about the tasks that'll compound. The last thing you wanna do is put an hour in and only get an hour out. You need to hire your hours to be more productive than that. How can you design your life such that the hours you put in amplify your time? Speaking with 10 people about your idea suddenly plants that seed in 10 people's minds who can then talk to other people about your idea when you aren't there. The message, if done well, is durable. It compounds. About three weeks into the 15 emails a day, I was not only getting responses from the direct emails, but I had an inbox filled to the brim with all the spokes reaching out too. I had gone from a single person working on something alone to a network of about 100 people at least somewhat invested in the idea working. I had 100 people who knew what I was doing and 100 people spreading it. While I slept or worked on other things, they made introductions. They posted to social media. They shared my posts. One month of 15 paperclips per day created enough momentum to launch Tacklebox. Suddenly, the default inertia state was for people to show up in my inbox. We were default growing rather than default stagnant. Being an entrepreneur often feels like pushing a stone up a hill from a dead stop. Each time you sit down to work, you need to muster up the effort to get that stone moving again. Paperclips gave me momentum. They, or something like that, might give it to you too. Momentum is your lifeblood, your air to breathe. You need to design your life to create it. Think about the last thing you did really well. I bet there were a few components of it. You probably had a routine, you had accountability, you had a support system, you had clear, measurable goals, a start time and an end time, a scoreboard. Startups inherently have absolutely none of these, and people are bad at creating them from scratch because inertia, whatever you're doing now, is usually just easier, The best thing you can possibly do is spend every Sunday tweaking your life design. Create the scoreboard, create accountability, create the scenario with all the inputs that lead to success. Measure them weekly, reflect on what worked, then do more of that. I started the pod talking about being less stupid rather than being smarter. And I truly believe that's the key to most success. In a way, not a big way, in a very small way, but still a way, my grandpa had it easier than some people today because the things that hold so many capable people back is cognitive and hardwired and unique to our time right now. I doubt most 30-year-olds my grandpa knew were living at home, delivering mail, and going to college at night, but I also doubt anyone had any clue he was doing that. Today, it's really hard to act differently. It feels like everyone knows what we're doing, and they kinda do. If you're starting a company, you're probably gonna put it on LinkedIn. If it fails, it's probably gonna come off your LinkedIn. I'm gonna guarantee they don't care, but it's tough to convince yourself that that's true. And when the pressure goes up, our willingness to act differently plummets. It's a defense mechanism, which is why so many businesses look the same, why so many people approach them the same way, and why so many businesses fail. You need to act differently to succeed, but acting different is the last thing your body wants to do when you're stressed. Luckily, there's a solution. It's kind of simple. You need to remove your brain from the equation and focus on the motion side of things. Do lots of things in lots of different ways, schedule, plan, and design them so that you don't have to ask yourself the question each day, am I ready for the emotional toll of doing something different today? You just have action. Now is the time when I reach out to 15 people because this is what I do every day. So I need to figure out how to do that. Design for that or it won't happen. I wanted to start reading more about five years ago, and I was given fantastic advice. My goal was to read unique stuff, to get influence from places other people didn't have, then mash everything up with what I already believed to come up with something different and meaningful. But the stuff I was choosing, while unique, was tough to get through. My friend who reads an unbelievable amount and runs a huge company told me to forget the books I'd chosen and just read what I wanted to read. He asked what my guilty pleasure read was. A bit too quickly, I answered Harry Potter. And he said, great, read Harry Potter every day this week, get the muscle memory down. Then next week, mix in the harder book one day instead of Harry Potter. Then the following week, two days. There are two secrets that I know are true about your startup idea. First, it's probably way off from anything that would actually work right now. And second, that's where every good idea starts. If I know you like I think I do, you likely had the idea that you're thinking about pursuing like five years ago, and you've been thinking about it ever since. And since startup ideas always present themselves in the form of a product, I'm going to make an app that helps people find parking spots in New York City, and not in the form of a problem and a customer, like it's expensive for young families in New York City who want to escape to their in-laws on the weekends to find affordable parking, so they need to park on the street, and that's wildly stressful. Whatever your product idea was is now dated. So your job isn't to prove that previous you was right or to build the thing that 2019 you thought was, quote, sick, your words. It's to interact with customers so much that you know more about them than anyone else does. Wherever you're starting at is kind of irrelevant. The secret to all our best entrepreneurs is the habit, the practice. Doing stuff other people don't do every single day for a period of time and learning things other people can't possibly learn. This only works if you design your life if you swap habits that don't give you unique inputs, things like social media or texting or whatever else, with habits that do, reading or reaching out to customers. You'll need to recognize the two big contradictions of startups. First, you need to be serious and rigid, but also not serious and malleable. Serious and rigid about your process, not serious and malleable about where that process takes you. And you need to be completely impatient yet wholly patient Impatient about gathering information, patient with the compounding effects of that information and those relationships and the insights that will come from it. Patient for the insight strong enough that it can anchor your company. Patient for a problem that's so important your potential customers are actively trying to solve it already and would pay you just about anything to make it go away. Impatient with the actions to find that customer. Life is flimsy and silly. My grandpa was a mistake, and who the heck knows all the other breaks that had to go right for me to be talking to you right now. My grandpa didn't take it for granted. He solved real problems and never set foot in the lazy river most people were hanging out in, and he was happy and busy and incredibly useful to the end. Our best startups, the ones making an actual dent in the world, were the ones who didn't leave it to chance, who didn't accept their default inertia, who designed their life to be different, designed it so they couldn't not be. You've got greatness in there. Design your life to let it out. This was the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you want to do the stuff we just talked about with a little help, the Tacklebox membership will give you the structure needed to execute on your idea. Head to gettacklebox.com slash no whisper ideas for more. Have a great week.